If you would, please, return in your Bibles to John chapter 9, verse 24, on page 1234, John 9, verse 24. Amazing Grace is one of the hymns that is most loved by the church. The opening line includes this, I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The author of those lyrics, a man by the name of John Newton, was clearly influenced by the section we're now studying, the story of the man born blind. And obviously he was particularly struck by the passage we will examine today, in which the healed man says, one thing I know, I once was blind, but now I see. Some of you may know the story of John Newton, but allow me to review it for those who don't. And the information I will present is taken from an article written by Mary Fairchild. Newton was born in London, England in 1725. As a teenager, he joined the Royal Navy. He rebelled against the Navy's strict military discipline and eventually deserted. When he was captured, he was imprisoned and then discharged from the service. With that stain, he took a series of jobs sailing on slave trading ships. When Newton was 22 years old, he was working on a slave ship bound for England. On that journey, the ship was battered by an extremely violent storm in the North Atlantic. The ship was in serious trouble, and one of his fellow sailors had already been washed overboard. While he pumped furiously below deck to remove water from the ship, he was sure that he was going to die. As Fairchild writes, recalling Bible verses about God's grace towards sinners that he had learned from his mother, Newton whispered his first feeble prayer in years. For the remainder of his life, Newton would remember this day as the anniversary of his conversion, the hour he first believed. Unfortunately, after this event, there was a period of backsliding. But then, several months later, he fell ill with a terrible fever. It was then that he surrendered and gave himself to Christ. I wish I could report that it was at this point in his life that he gave up his former life as a slave trader. But in fact, he served as a captain, the captain of the ship on two different slave ships for the next five years. But eventually, he came to see the horror and the utter depravity of slavery, and in particular, his role in it. We will suppose that as he grew in his understanding of Christ, he grew in recognizing the depths of his sin. 
he would join with a member of England's parliament, a man by the name of William Wilberforce, and fight for the abolition of slavery in England. In 1764, at the age of 39, Newton was ordained as a minister and took a parish in the small village of Olney. It was here that Newton began writing hymns, many of which were autobiographical in nature. In fact, all three hymns that we are lifting up to the Lord today were written by Newton, including the final hymn that is still to come, Amazing Grace. And as we, will, as we do sing, we will sing with Newton, with the man born blind, and every believer, as we sing, I once was blind, but now I see. Before we look at our text for today, let's recall two important details that we've already covered that guide the entire account. The first was the response Jesus gave to his disciples after they asked why this man was born blind. They asked, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus explained that neither sinned, but that through this man, the works of God would be revealed. The second detail concerns how he was healed, which was done in an unusual way. Jesus could have simply said the word and the man would have been instantaneously healed. Instead, Jesus folded together a mixture of dirt and saliva and anointed the man's eyes and then told him to go and wash. And when he did, he came home seeing. And when he returned home, he was not greeted with voices of celebration, but with voices of suspicion. The man was subjected to a gauntlet of questioning, first from his neighbors and then from the Pharisees. The neighbors debated whether or not this man who used to be blind has now been healed. They're not sure this is the same man. So some people said, yes, this is the same man. Some people said, no, he's like him, meaning he looks like him, but he's not the same man. The crowd of neighbors could not settle their debate, and so they brought the man to appear before the Pharisees. The Pharisees questioned the man, asking how his eyes were opened. And the man explained at John 9, verse 15, very succinctly, he tells them, He put clay on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. A debate was then sparked among the Pharisees as they too divided into two camps. But their debate did not focus on the healing itself, but on the timing of it. Knowing that this supposed healing occurred on the Sabbath, some labeled Jesus as a sinner because he broke the Sabbath. Other members of the panel, however, questioned that conclusion, and they asked at verse 16, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs, that is, signs that point to God. Like some of the neighbors, the Pharisees were also suspicious of this man's story. 
they too thought it was a case of mistaken identity, that the man who now sees was not the same man who was born blind. And so in order to investigate this, they call the parents into the courtroom setting to interrogate them. The parents confirmed two things, saying, we know this is our son, and we know that he was born blind. But they also included in their testimony two things that they didn't know. They went on to say, and this is key, how he was born blind, or who, I mean, I'm sorry, who, who, how he now sees, or who caused him to now see, that we don't know. So they denied two things. We don't know how he was healed, and we don't know who healed him. We considered how unlikely that was, but they nevertheless made this claim. John explained why they refused to cooperate when speaking about their healed son. They feared the religious authorities, and most of all, they feared being put out of the synagogue. They feared, they feared excommunication from the synagogue. Because all Jewish life, in the first century especially, revolved around the synagogue, not just religious, but social and financial life revolved around the synagogue, to be expelled from the synagogue meant personal and financial ruin. Therefore, the parents distanced themselves from their own son. We might say they threw him under the bus. And in their closing statement, they said, about, they said to the Pharisees this about their son. He's old enough to speak for himself. If you have any more questions, ask him. And that brings us to our text for today. The religious authorities summon the blind man for a second round of questioning, a second round of questioning. While we know that this man is no longer blind, I will sometimes refer to him as the blind man just for the ease of identifying him. Let's go please to verse 24 as we pick up where we left off. So they again called the man who was born blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. They have already questioned the blind man once, but they will call upon him again for a second round of questioning. After the testimony of the parents, there was no good reason for the Pharisees to deny that a miracle had taken place. But rather than admit this miracle, they will attempt to pressure the man to join them in their disbelief. They will do this by insisting that the man who seemingly healed him was not the one who deserves the credit. Let's notice that when the blind man returns to the court, they immediately say two things to him. Give glory to God. And we know this man, meaning Jesus, we know this man is a sinner. The first statement, give glory to God, was a common saying of the time. And in this context, it means two things. And two things at the same time. 
The first meaning is that it acts like an oath formula. When we go to court, they will say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And so this is like an oath formula. Give glory to God. And as they do, they're calling upon him to tell the truth and not to withhold anything. The second possible meaning of this phrase, and again, both are likely meant at the same time, is that the Pharisees refused to see Jesus as the one responsible for this healing. After all, as they say in the second statement, we know this man, meaning Jesus, is a sinner. Now, as an aside, notice that the Pharisees cannot bear to speak the name of Jesus. How do they refer to him as this man? In their minds, a sinner could not do something like this, giving sight to the blind. Therefore, when they say, give glory to God, they are attempting to pressure the man not to give credit to Jesus, but to give credit where they believe credit is due to God. And so they say, give glory to God, not to Jesus. Give glory to God. At verse 25, the man responds to their opening statement. Verse 25, he answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Here is one of the greatest and most celebrated lines spoken in the Bible. And I will suggest that one of the key reasons it is so loved is because we as believers can identify with this man. There is a sense that we too were once blind. We were blind in the sense that we knew about a man called Jesus. We knew about Jesus as an historical figure. But we were blind and unable to see the truth of who he really is. But then the Holy Spirit touched us. He touched our hearts, and Jesus opened our eyes. And when our eyes were open, we recognized Jesus for who he is. He is Savior and Lord. Let's have a closer look at this man's testimony. He begins by saying, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. Now, the man will have more to say about that in just a moment, and he will prove that the man who healed him cannot be a sinner. But for right now, the man will put this issue on hold. He wants to instead emphasize the one thing that he does know, the one thing he knows experientially, about which there can be no question. He says, the one thing I do know is that I once was blind, but now I see. Let's realize that in his testimony, there is a principle that applies to every one of us, to every believer. And this principle can guide us in our own testimony. There is no counter-argument that can challenge a statement like this. And again, it's a statement that all believers can make. I once was blind, but now I see. You see, at the root of this statement is the miracle of transformation. This statement essentially says, Jesus has changed my life. 
I believe each of us who have called upon the name of Christ can say the same. Each of us who believe can say, Jesus Christ has saved my life and has changed my life. Amen? Notice the man's statement, one thing I know. This reminds us that we don't need to know the answer to every question before we share Christ. We don't need to have every theological difficulty figured out. All we really need to say is, one thing that I know, Jesus changed my life. Jesus transformed my life. You see, each and every one of you is an expert at what Jesus did for you and how he brought transformation to your life. No person, no argument can challenge your testimony about how Jesus changed your life. Now, if you are not sure that you are transformed, let me say this. I don't know anything more transformational than knowing that you have been given eternal life. That is a profound change. For all who believe know we have hope and a future. That is transformational. I once was blind, but now I see. After the man emphasizes the profound change that has occurred in his life, that he has been given sight, something that he never had, just as before we met Christ, we didn't have eternal life, this man didn't have sight. The Pharisees respond to the man with a pair of questions. Look, please, at verse 26. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? The Pharisees have already heard this man's testimony, and yet they want to go back over the same ground and hear it again. They want to hear again what was done to him and how his eyes were open. Why is that? Why are they asking him yet again? Well, anyone who has watched a TV police show already knows the answer. It's a common tactic. On these shows, the police will question a suspect, and they'll say, let's go over it again. And the suspect will, will rebel. He'll say, I've told you a hundred times, how many times do I have to say the same thing? And what, do they detect you, what does the detective usually say? One more time, right? And why did they do that? Because they are hoping that the suspect will trip up and reveal an inconsistency in their story. But this man refuses to play their little game. At verse 27, he answered them. He answered them, I told you already. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? He responds to the two questions asked by the Pharisees with two questions of his own. But first, he begins by rebuking the Pharisees. He says to them, I told you already, and you did not listen. This man clearly has something that his parents lack, a backbone. The parents cowered under the threat of excommunication as they feared being put out of the synagogue. But this man will not back down. He has no fear standing up to the Pharisees and standing up for the truth. 
He reminds them. He's already given his testimony. He sees no reason to give it again. Why? Because he says, you did not listen. They did not listen because they don't want to hear the truth. That is why the man goes on to ask them his two questions, and no doubt he asked them with a very sarcastic tone. He says, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? He knows they have no interest in becoming the disciples of Jesus. Their angry faces and the tone of their question makes clear they hate this man. They're not going to become his disciples. And so the purpose of this question is to jab the Pharisees, to ridicule the Pharisees. It is to show the Pharisees that this man is not afraid of them. I imagine we might be relieved to see someone finally standing up to these Pharisees. In fact, I find it kind of amusing as he asked this question. But as he asked this question, let's not miss an important detail. Let's notice the word also. As in, do you also want to become his disciples? That tells us that this man sees himself as a disciple of Jesus. And that is exactly how the Pharisees understood this man's sarcastic jab at them. Look at verse 28. Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, meaning Jesus' disciple. You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. I don't think I've ever heard anyone use the word revile. So I looked up the definition. To revile someone is to verbally abuse them. The NIV has... Then they hurled insults at him. And we will suppose they had a great many nasty things to say to this man as they vented their anger. But what John records for us is that they drew a sharp distinction between themselves and this man. They say to him, you, you are his disciple." but we are Moses' disciples. Obviously, they're drawing a line between two sides, and they are implying that the blind man, well, he's on the wrong side. He, the blind man, has aligned himself with a sinner, someone who breaks the Sabbath law. Remember, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. In contrast, they have aligned themselves with Moses, who is the giver of the law. But the reader has already been made aware that the supposed dedication the Pharisees have to Moses is not real. The Pharisees are self-deceived about their so-called discipleship to Moses. According to Jesus, they are not the disciples of Moses. In chapter 5, verse 46, we heard Jesus say this, If you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for Moses wrote about me. Because they do not believe in Jesus, it reveals that they are not the disciples of Moses. Because Moses foretold the coming of the Messiah. Although they are not, in fact, the disciples of Moses, they will presume to draw yet another distinction. 
The first distinction drew a contrast between themselves and the blind man. Now they will draw a distinction between Jesus and Moses. Look please at verse 29. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The first part of their statement is accurate. God did speak to Moses. Through Moses, God spoke all the words of the divine law. And so it is true that God spoke to Moses. But it is the second part of their statement where they fall into error. In the second part, they say, as for this fellow, meaning Jesus, as for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. Let's make two observations about this statement. First, let's notice that once again they refuse to speak the name of Jesus. They refer to him as this fellow. At least that's how the New King James has it. If you're looking at the New King James, notice that the word fellow is in italics. As for this fellow. It is in italics because that is to indicate that this word fellow has no counterpart, has no corresponding word in the original Greek text. That word fellow has been added for us to help us as readers. A more literal rendering would be, but this. That's it. But this. We know that God spoke to Moses, but this, we do not know where he is from. To my ears, that sounds like they are describing something that is of absolute insignificance. They're not sure how to finish the thought. They're so full of disgust, they don't know how to describe the man they're talking about. And so they say, we, we know about Moses, but this, we do not know where he is from. This, whatever, we do not know where he is from. The second observation we will make concerns the Pharisees, their claim that they do not know where he is from. That statement is unexpected. It's unexpected because we can almost be we can be almost certain that the Pharisees know exactly where Jesus is from. Everyone else in Israel apparently knew where Jesus was from because everywhere he would go, people referred to him as what? Jesus of Nazareth. Sure. Remember, Jesus has been under the watchful eye of the Pharisees for two and a half years. They've been investigating him. They've been following him. They're looking for evidence to, to um, destroy him. And so it is very unlikely when they say, we do not know where he's from. Of course, we know where Jesus is from. We know that he was raised in Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem, according to the prophecy of Micah. And while we're speaking of Jesus' place of origin, the reader knows that ultimately Jesus is not from Nazareth, nor even from Bethlehem, that, but we know that Jesus is from where? From heaven. From heaven. He is from heaven. He was sent by the Father. Jesus said exactly this in the previous scene while he was teaching in the temple, likely in the hearing of these very Pharisees, that he was sent by the Father and has come down from heaven. Another reason this statement is unexpected is because it does not seem to parallel the first part of the statement. Look, 
In the first part of the statement, the Pharisees say this. We know that God spoke to Moses. In the second part, we would expect them to say, and we know that God has not spoken to this man. We know he's spoken to Moses, and we know that God did not speak to this man. He's a sinner. But that's not what they say. But I suggest that is exactly what they mean. When they say, we don't know where he is from, that doesn't necessarily mean they don't know he is from Nazareth. It means they don't believe that he is from God. They believe Moses has come from God in the sense Moses spoke as a representative of God. But then in contrast, they say, but as for this, we don't know where he is from, meaning we don't know where he is from, but one thing we know, he's not from God. The blind man will now respond to this refusal to see Jesus as being sent by God. Look at verse 30, please. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from. Yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he does hear him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This speech is brilliant, both in its content and in its courage. He begins by noting the admitted ignorance of the Pharisees. He says this, it is a marvelous thing that you, you Pharisees, you do not know where he is from. We will recall that underlying this entire account of the man born blind is the subject of miracles. Ordinarily, a miracle causes astonishment. When, a, when people see a miracle, they marvel, they're, they're amazed. Well, this man, once again, takes a jab at the Pharisees by saying that he is amazed that they don't know where he is from. It is as if the blind man is saying that with his newly opened eyes, he's seeing an anti-miracle, a miracle that they're missing. He's amazed. He's astonished. He cannot believe that they cannot see the truth about Jesus considering the proof is standing right in front of them. He goes on to remind them of the obvious. Look again. You say you do not know where he is from, and yet he's opened my eyes. The implication for the Pharisees is how can you be so blind? For this man, it is clear where Jesus is from. Jesus must be from God. Because as we've heard before, from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah foretold that a definitive sign that the Messiah had come would be his miraculous ability and power to give sight to the blind. It is no coincidence that this man points out in this speech the unprecedented nature of what Jesus has done. Let's just take a peek ahead to 32. 
At verse 32, the man says, Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. This has never happened before in history, he says. But before he speaks of the unprecedented nature of this miracle, he returns to an earlier accusation the Pharisees made about Jesus. Back in verse 24, they said, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. At the time, the man deflected the question in favor of focusing on the one thing that he does know, that he once was blind, but now he sees. But now he returns to that statement to issue a correction. At verse 31, he says this, We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. There is ample scriptural evidence that supports his assertion that God does not hear, meaning he does not respond to the prayers of sinners. Consider this from Isaiah 1.15, where God says this through the prophet. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear because your hands are full of blood. Or consider this from Psalm 66, verse 18. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. While the blind man's statement is accurate, we know it does not tell the whole story. We know that there is one prayer that God does hear and he wants to hear, especially from the sinner. And what is that prayer? It is the prayer of confession. It is the prayer of repentance. It is the prayer that says, Lord, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. I need Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That prayer, God does answer. The scripture says, all who call upon, of, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In the second part of his statement, after the man says, that God does not hear the sinner, he goes on to speak about those that God does hear. He says, if anyone is a worshiper of God, literally a God-fearer, if anyone is a God-fearer and does God's will, he hears him. Let's focus our attention on the second condition, where the man speaks about doing the will of God. If anyone does his will... God hears that person. This begs the question, what is the will of God? Well, we could consider that question for weeks, and we would barely scratch the surface. But there is one truth that stands above all else. The will of God is to believe in his Son. God wants all people everywhere to be saved and that we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls. That is the will of God, to believe in his only begotten son. Let's go please to verse 33 because here the man also responds to the absurd statement made by the Pharisees that they don't know where this man is from. 
And what this man will now make clear is that Jesus comes from God. Verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That is, he could do nothing like this. If this man were not from God, he could not give sight to a man born blind. And with that obvious truth, the man rests his case. His step-by-step argument is an impressive piece of reasoning. It's especially impressive when we consider this is someone who spent his entire life begging and likely has never had any kind of formal education, not as a blind man. And yet, he has provided a well-reasoned, scripture-based argument. But it is not well-received by the Pharisees, is it? Let's look finally at verse 34. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins, and you are teaching us, and they cast him out. The Pharisees make no attempt to consider his words. They don't attempt to debate him. What do they do? They hurl insults at him, right? Pretty typical for somebody who doesn't have a a cogent argument, right? Just hurl insults. They verbally attack the man. You were completely born in sins. As they attacked this man, notice the word completely. As in, you were completely born in sins. They are alluding, once again, to the commonly held belief that this man's blindness was the result of personal sin, either his own or that of his parents. I suggest that what the Pharisees are implying by this word completely is that it is not just his eyesight that was affected by sin, in their estimation. They are saying that every part of his body was born into sin, and therefore they are not going to accept a single word that comes out of his disgusting mouth. As a result, they're going to reject every word of his testimony. And since, as they say, his words are the words of a sinner, although he speaks the truth, They rhetorically and sarcastically say to him, and you are teaching us? You, a sinful, uneducated beggar, are teaching us? And when they're done insulting him, John reports, quote, they cast him out. John does not explain exactly what he means by that. It may simply mean that they cast him out of their presence, but it is more likely, based on the larger context, that they cast him out of the synagogue. The very thing that his parents wanted to avoid, being put out of the synagogue, is precisely the penalty that their son must now suffer. While this man's parents cowered in the face of persecution, this man stood strong. But because he stood up for the truth, Because he stood strong, he will now be an outcast in his community. He will be shunned. He will be cut off from his countrymen. At this point, it may have occurred to this man that he pushed too hard and that he pushed the wrong people. And now he is likely picturing a future in which he would be all alone. But if that is his thinking, it would not last for long. Because the best part of this story is still to come. 
Let's have a quick peek at the next verse, verse 35, and God willing, that will be where we will begin next week. At verse 35, John says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when Jesus found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? Jesus is not done working in this man's life. Jesus said that this man's blindness was so that the works, plural, the works of God would be revealed in him. There is still a great work to be accomplished, just as Jesus continues to work in your life and mine. And when Jesus continues his work, and this man shows that he does believe in the Son of God, this man will never be alone, just as we who believe are never alone. For the Lord, our God, will never leave us nor forsake us. That is, for those who once were blind, but now see. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table this morning, we acknowledge that we celebrate you and our communion with you because by your divine and miraculous power, you opened our eyes, and for this we are forever grateful. Amen.